Support for WPR comes from 4imprint, providers of promotional products for businesses, including embroidered apparel, trade show items, and logoed business gifts. More is at 4imprint.com. 4imprint, for certain. Support for WPR comes from Ulbrich Botanical Gardens, home to 16 acres of Midwest Hardy Display Gardens, located at 3330 Atwood Avenue in Madison. Open daily from 10 to 6. Ulbrich.org. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. On Monday, Planned Parenthood resumed providing abortions in Wisconsin after more than a year-long hiatus. It's a move based in part on a decision by a Dane County Circuit Court judge that ruled that the 1849 abortion ban does not apply to voluntary medical abortions. Here's the announcement from Tanya Atkinson, president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin. Since the U.S. Supreme Court decision, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin has maintained there were two paths that would allow PPWI to resume providing abortion services, a legislative path and a legal path. A ruling by the Dane County Circuit Court in July made it clear that the 1849 law is not enforceable for voluntary abortions. This Monday, September 18th, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin will resume abortion care at our Water Street Health Center in Milwaukee and in Madison at our Madison East Health Center. In consultation with attorneys, physicians, partners, and stakeholders, Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin is confident in our decision to resume abortion care in Wisconsin. Coming up, we'll talk to a Wisconsin legal expert about the basis of the decisions by that judge and Planned Parenthood. First, we'll get the latest from our own state government reporter. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about this decision? Do you have questions about the legal future in the courts of this? There will be uh, more, I'm sure, to come. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Sarah Lear is a state government reporter for Wisconsin Public Radio. Sarah, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We heard from the director of Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin. Can you talk a little more about what they said about uh, why and how they're resuming, resuming their services now? So they're resuming abortions at two clinics, one's in Madison and one's in Milwaukee. They started offering those appointments Monday. The CEO of Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin says appointments very quickly filled up after becoming available. Uh, Their reasoning is a decision from this summer from a Dane County Circuit Court judge in which the judge opined basically that a 19th century law that has been widely interpreted as banning most abortions, actually bans feticide, which is when someone attacks a pregnant person and destroys the fetus. The judge actually uh, wrote that she doesn't think, uh, under her interpretation, that the law bans abortions that are done with a patient's consent. As I mentioned, we're going to be talking to a a law professor about uh, the law side of that. I'm guessing, though, that word from that judge probably won't be the last word. It seems like all parties agree there's going to be lawsuits and legal challenges around this. Absolutely. The case in Dane County is still ongoing. It's likely to make its way to Wisconsin's Supreme Court eventually. And last week, the Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said that Planned Parenthood was being presumptive in making this decision. He said, you know, this is still ongoing. He thinks the abortion ban is still in effect. You mentioned that uh, we don't know how many appointments, but that appointments were full, according to Planned Parenthood. 
There's been a long history of protest and counter-protest for abortion providers. Have we seen that already this week? Yep. Protesters outside the clinics in Madison and Milwaukee this week. Uh, WPR's reporter Margaret Faust, for example, was outside the Milwaukee clinic. Nearly 50 people there praying, um, citing religious faith as a reason for opposing abortions. Um, by Monday morning, there was already you know, fairly large protests there. And uh, we mentioned there are likely legal cases to come. Are there next steps in this story that you're watching for now? Well, uh, Wisconsin's Democratic Attorney General, Josh Call, who sued days after Roe was overturned to try and block prosecutions of abortions under the 19th century law, he's filed a motion asking for final judgment in the Dane County case. He wants Circuit Court Judge Diane Schlipper to issue a final order saying very clearly, no, the law does not ban abortions done with a pregnant person's consent. Sarah, we'll leave it there. Thanks a lot for bringing us up to date today. Thank you. That's Sarah Lear, state government reporter here at Wisconsin Public Radio. She helped us break down the news of Planned Parenthood resuming abortions in Wisconsin. Now we're going to dig into the legal context of Planned Parenthood's decision. Lisa Maisie is a professor at Marquette University Law School. She specializes in appellate advocacy, feminist legal theory, legal reasoning, and statutory interpretation. Lisa, thanks a lot for joining us today. And thank you for having me. Okay, this is a legal argument I think that uh, a lot of people will disagree uh, about. Can you break down the argument that came through this Dane County Circuit Court that said, contrary to I think what we've been thinking over the last year, medical abortion isn't illegal in Wisconsin under that 1849 law? Sure. So one of the things to to keep in mind here is that um, when courts interpret statutes, um, there's a process for doing that. There's a well-established process um, in Wisconsin that the Supreme Court of Wisconsin um, has elaborated in case law that, that says this is how we go about interpreting statutes. And the, the main, the first step in interpreting a statute always is looking at the, the text of the statute itself and reading the text of the statute. And um, and that is where um, the district court judge began, was with the text of the statute. Um, she is able to lean heavily on a 1990, 1994 Wisconsin Supreme Court case called State v. Black um, that had already interpreted one part of the this um, statute. So we're talking about section 940.04 of the Wisconsin statutes and the 1994 case dealt with section 940.04 sub two. And that is the, the case where um, the court decided that that, um, that provision applied to feticide, not to voluntary abortions. And so part of the analysis here is there's like, there's like, other than the penalty involved, there's like one word difference between subsection one and subsection two. And it would be absurd to interpret those two provisions differently. So for example, to, to interpret subsection two to apply to feticide as the court in State versus Black did, um, and then interpret subsection one to apply to voluntary abortions that she says just would not make sense. 
Now, in the abortion law language defining uh, feticide as homicide, uh, I want to read a couple lines from it here, quoting any person other than the mother who intentionally destroys the life of an unborn child, ending quote there, would be subject to a felony charge. And there's a, a specification, this section does not apply to a therapeutic abortion, which is performed by a physician, is necessary to save the life of the mother, uh, and it goes on. So if I was arguing on the, uh, I guess, pro-life side or against what Planned Parenthood is doing, I would say, well, wait a minute, they make that exception for therapeutic abortion. Doesn't that imply that the initial thing covers all the other abortions that could potentially happen? Right. And I think that's a, that that makes that makes sense. Um, now, whether that section could be, if you will, severed from the understanding of the other two mm-hmm. is is a different question, but the but the the question here isn't so much about the, thera- the therapeutic abortions. The question is about voluntary abortions and doctors who provide voluntary abortions. Would they be prosecuted under sub one? And the concern after the the uh, after the fall of Roe versus Wade was that they would be. And then, you know, subject to um, a felony. We'll dig more into uh, the the fine print, I guess, in our law. But at right now, Planned Parenthood in Wisconsin is uh, providing abortions uh, to some patients. I want to talk to uh, who might be legally liable. First of all, as I understand it, and please correct me if I'm wrong, Lisa, a patient, somebody who goes to Planned Parenthood, receives an abortion, they do not have legal liability. Do I have that right? You are correct. There is the... The patient who obtains an abortion cannot, and I want to stress that, cannot be prosecuted for obtaining an abortion. Um, That's in Wisconsin Statute 940.13. So patients themselves should feel comfortable that they are not, should not be in fear of being prosecuted for obtaining uh, an abortion. Now, for somebody working at Planned Parenthood who is part of providing an abortion, uh, it seems like there's a gray area right now. I don't know. Yeah. So the statute says any person, right, and other than the mother. So um, doctors come to mind, of course, but there could be, I suppose, you know, other personnel involved in that process or procedure um, that could fall under that statute. It would depend how the 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 district attorney viewed it, viewed the statutory language. And that's a key point. Uh, these things are happening in Madison and Milwaukee. Uh, district attorneys in those uh, counties, Dane and Milwaukee County, might not pursue these charges. Uh, I believe the attorney general, Josh Call, uh, I mean, he's challenged the current state of Wisconsin law. He doesn't seem likely. If no one pursues charges, then... We won't put these uh, these laws, these ideas to the test. That that's correct. So yes, you're correct that um, the the Milwaukee County District Attorney and the Dane County District Attorney, and of course Madison is located in Dane County, um, have they did not participate in defending or in this lawsuit. So um, they, I believe, they've said publicly that they would not. Um, prosecute anyone. And then Josh Call has said he is not going to, his office will not prosecute anyone. So under those district attorneys, we won't know. The question is, of course, if those district attorneys 
change, if the people in those positions change, would some subsequent district attorney take a different position? We're talking to Lisa Maisie, professor at Marquette University Law School about Planned Parenthood's decision to resume, resume abortion services in Wisconsin and many legal issues surrounding that, you can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about the idea of Planned Parenthood resuming abortions as they have in Wisconsin this week? Do you think they made the right decision to start offering them right now? Do you have thoughts on what uh, the 1849 law in Wisconsin means or should be read to mean? Would you want to see lawmakers change Wisconsin's abortion laws? If so, how? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our talk with Lisa Maisie, professor of legal writing at Marquette University Law School. She's breaking down the current state of abortion law in Wisconsin after Planned Parenthood announced it's resuming abortion services as of this week. You can join in at 800-642-1234. What do you think about Planned Parenthood's decision to resume abortions in Wisconsin? Are you confused about the state of the law, given that's happening? If so, I promise you are not alone. If you're a medical provider, what do you think about all of this? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. Lisa, uh, this is already pretty complicated. Here's another twist. We had that 1849 law just after Wisconsin became a state. Then a law passed in 1985, you know, while Roe v. Wade is in effect, uh, that seemingly contradicts that 1849 law, though that older law was never actually taken off the books. We've had challenges, including from the, the state attorney general, saying, hey, no, 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 1985 law, that's the most current one. That's in effect. How do those two laws uh, play together in our court system? Right, and that's something that the district court wrestled with here. Um, and again, so there's like there there are rules about how courts go about interpreting statutes. And one of the the rules about that is trying to make sense of how two seemingly contrary things can coexist together. Right? We we presume um, that there's some logical development of the law. So. So the fact that there were these later statutes that um, more thoroughly addressed um, abortion in Wisconsin, do those um, impliedly repeal that earlier statute? How does that work? And that, like I said, is something that the judge wrestled with. And in part, she solves that by saying, in, in those were enacted in 1985, by 1994, the Wisconsin Supreme Court had decided that 940.04 covered feticide, or at least 940.04 sub 2 had covered feticide. And so therefore, it's a different statute. It's not the same. And so those the other statutes in, uh, enacted in 1985 can regulate abortion, and that's what they regulate. This other one, 940.04, regulates something different. And that's one way that, that she resolved the way of making sense with it. Another, um, another what we call canon of construction um, of rules about uh, of statutory interpretation is that the legis we presume the legislature is aware of what the court does when it interprets statutes. So 
Um, so when the court in 1994 interpreted 940.04 in the way that it did, the legislature did not change the law. It did not change 940.04 to make it make it clear that it did not address feticide and that it was meant to address something else. So the fact that the legislature did not change the law is something that we say in 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 the in legal analysis is that that we assume that the legislature agrees with the interpretation that the court gave the law. Let's bring on a caller at 800-642-1234. Jim is with us in Milwaukee. Jim, hello. Hello. I just had a question for the professor. If, if uh, you know, a district attorney in a different county was to interpret the old, you know, 1869 um, law, to um, still be charged criminally, could they charge like a, a juvenile who didn't get consent from their parents because they're not required to? Um, could they, in a different county, charge uh, a kid in Milwaukee because there's not like a venue issue uh, with respect to juvenile cases in Wisconsin? Jim, thanks for the call. I think a couple different things in there, Lisa. First of all, uh, if a district attorney were charging on, uh, for abortion uh, provision in the state, could a minor's parent uh, be charged for setting up the appointment, driving the kid to the abortion, that kind of thing? Um, that is, a, I, I have not thought about that, so I'm, I, I feel like my answer will be somewhat incomplete. Mm-hmm. Um, that raises for me, um, it just raises other concerns for me about you know the ability of someone to to move across the state vehicularly like driving across the state to obtain uh, an abortion there seems to be some ability you should be able to to move across the state to do things right um so i i am not so sure i suppose some district attorney in a different county could but um the abortion would not have taken place in that county. And that seems to me to be sort of crucial to what we're talking about here. Jim, thanks a lot for the call. And Lisa, I know a lot of states uh, have moved toward legislation, making it explicit that, or trying to make it explicit that uh, uh, traveling across state lines might be legal or anybody involved in the process of uh, transporting anywhere along the way toward an abortion. Wisconsin has not done things uh, explicitly along those lines, as far as I know. Correct, as far as I know. And from um, other legal scholars that have uh, considered that issue, they most seem to, to think that those kinds of statutes, those kind of laws um, are going to be unconstitutional. Thanks again for that call, Jim, at 800-642-1234. Talking to Lisa Maisie, professor at Marquette University Law School, about the current state of abortion law in Wisconsin after Planned Parenthood of Wisconsin announced they're resuming abortion services based in large part on one one circuit court judge's ruling uh, in an ongoing lawsuit. I wanted to ask, Lisa, uh, we've got a lot of different courts, of course, here in the state. Uh, We had this this circuit uh, court judge in Dane County make this ruling uh, in refusing to dismiss a lawsuit related to abortion. Like, what does that mean for the rest of the state? That doesn't instantly make her ruling the established uh, case law in the state, or, or does it? 
No, it, it, it does not. And, and as um, your reporter earlier said, this case is still ongoing. Mm -hmm. It is not ended yet. Um, so the, the, it's, it cannot yet be appealed. Um, so once you get something out of the district court and up higher into the court system, you would probably get um, more clarity on you know, whether this would apply across the state or not. But right now we're talking about one judge in one court with two particular parties or, well, three particular defendants, the district court, uh, the district attorneys of Dane County, Milwaukee County, and Sheboygan County. Likely, I mean, we can't predict the future, but I think it's a safe guess, Lisa. This will probably all end up uh, coming to the state Supreme Court at some point, right? I can't see how it isn't. <laughs> Let's go back. To I our... think it. I think it for sure will end up there. Time for one more caller. Chris is with us in Menominee. Chris, hi. Hi. Uh, so my question is, what exactly is the standing that the court recognizes that they have the the right to adjudicate this? this one way or another are we just debating where life begins are we deliberating women's rights which, which one is it what is their reason for adjudicating this chris thanks for the call uh who who uh, made the court system uh, part of this story lisa uh it, the, the standing argument is it, it's ne it's neither of of the things um mentioned so here where the court says the standing it can hear this case because that's it's a it's an issue that's unique um a unique issue of interest to citizens in this state and it it has case law to back that up so so because this is an important and unique issue and it matters to the people of this state right it's a it's affecting lives and health and lives that it the um, parties have standing to be in the court so it is there's there's this case is about an interpretation of a statute it is not a debate about when life begins or um the rights of of women or pregnant people. So that's, I think, an important thing to keep in mind here. Chris, thanks for the call. And Lisa, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. That's Lisa Maisie, professor at Marquette University Law School. We talked to her about the current state of abortion law in Wisconsin following Planned Parenthood's decision to resume abortion services. Tomorrow on the Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, check out the progress of Wisconsin's elk herd and the latest news about elk hunting here in the state. That's tomorrow morning at 7 here on the Ideas Network. Working in the media, we get a lot of emails from publicists promoting just about everything. Well, here's one of them. Today is apparently National Pepperoni Pizza Day. And an analysis of Google search data rates the top pizza toppings in every state. For some reason, this analysis came from a website that rates online casinos. Anyhow, the number one pizza topping in Wisconsin, this may shock you. Brace yourself for an amazing bit of information. It's pepperoni. Yes, Wisconsin agrees with 28 other states that pepperoni is the favorite pizza topping. Rounding out the top five are sausage, mushrooms, bacon, and chicken. That last one surprised me. I've had some good pizzas with chicken, don't get me wrong, but it beats out peppers and olives and onions, tomatoes. 
Anyhow, you could celebrate Pepperoni Pizza Day however you want to. This is Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. Coming up, Milwaukee is hosting the National At-Home Dads Convention tomorrow and Friday. We'll talk to one of the organizers and a presenter at the event about the issues facing fathers who stay at home and take the lead on child care. Right now, it's time for Wisconsin Life. Here's producer Maureen McCollum with a story about living between two worlds. How do you define home if you've grown up in multiple places? It's a question Paul Lohr of Kimberly has grappled with for years. So he went to visit his first home for clarity. He shares his story as part of the Home is Here project, which amplifies the voices of the growing number of Black, Asian, Native American, and Hispanic residents who call northeastern Wisconsin home. What is it like to call one of the most secret places on earth home? In the 1970s, I lived there, and then I left. For much of the 1960s and 1970s, this place I called home was closed to the outside world. For the past 60 years or so, it was one of the most dangerous places in the world to visit. After 45 years away, I finally had the opportunity to return home. It's a home that's far, far away from Kimberly, Wisconsin, where my family now lives. It's a home somewhere in central Laos. From an early age, the thought of one day returning home intrigued me, fascinated me, and motivated me. Back in November 2022, I was finally home. I made it to Vientian, Laos. My main goal was to retrace the path that many Hmong, including my family, took in the 1970s to seek refuge in Thailand. From Vientian, my wife, Maya, and I, along with our driver and his wife, headed to Longsan. Along the journey, we drove by a section of the Mekong River, where many Hmong, including my family, crossed to seek refuge in Thailand. This is where I lost my mother and one of my two sisters. Like many Hmong making this journey, my mother and sister drowned. We could not salvage their bodies to give them proper burials. I was about five or six years old. As we were departing the area, Maya whispered to me, any tears inside of you? I, of course, had many unexplained emotions, but I replied, no, they dried up a long time ago. Our next stop was Mun Ao, the last village my family lived in before leaving for Thailand. Standing on the outskirts of Mun Ao, I saw the entire village. I can still visualize our hut. I felt so relieved to finally see a place that I thought I would never see again. The next day, we visited several remaining historical landmarks from the Secret War in Laos, which is a secret military operation by the United States to counter communism in Laos and Vietnam in the 1960s and 1970s. First, we stopped by Pubia, which is the tallest mountain in Laos. This is where my father was assassinated. 
this site was the last stronghold for the Hmong, who supported the United States and stayed behind after the United States had already left Southeast Asia in 1975. Visiting here makes the few wonderful memories I still have of my father even more meaningful. After a week visiting my Laos home, I returned to my Wisconsin home, enlightened, enriched, and fulfilled. I finally felt at peace. I finally come to embrace that my far, far away home in Laos is no longer my home. It's simply now a part of my past. Home is now Kimberly, Wisconsin. Paolo is the Associate Dean of the School of Education at UW-La Crosse. His story is part of the Home is Here project from the New News Lab, a local news collaboration in northeastern Wisconsin made up of six media organizations, including WPR and the Green Bay Press-Gazette. More information can be found at wisconsinlife.org. Wisconsin Life is a co-production of Wisconsin Public Radio and PBS Wisconsin in partnership with Wisconsin Humanities. Additional support comes from Lowell and Mary Peterson of Appleton. I'm Maureen McCollum. Now, the number of fathers who are stay-at-home parents has nearly doubled over the last 30 years, as men now represent about one in five stay-at-home parents in the U.S. Spending more time in the house with the kids can be rewarding. It can also be isolating for many dads who can feel stigmatized and may not be able to connect as easily with other men who are in the workforce. The nonprofit National At-Home Dad Network is working to reduce those challenges and advocate for fathers. They're bringing their efforts to Milwaukee with an annual convention, Home Dad Con, tomorrow and Friday. We're finding out more about what dads are dealing with as stay-at-home parents. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Are we talking about you? Uh, if you're a dad, if you or someone you know exited the workforce to be a stay-at-home parent, what led to that? Has it brought you closer to your family? Has it created other challenges? Share your experiences at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Jonathan Heisey-Grove is the president of the National At-Home Dad Network, a stay-at-home father of two. Jonathan, thanks a lot for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me on today. And Noel Chesley is associate professor in the sociology department at UW-Milwaukee, who will be one of the presenters at this week's At-Home Dad Convention. Noel, welcome back to Central Time. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me again. Jonathan, let's start with you. First, can you give us a taste of uh, what stay-at-home dads would get out of uh, going to Home Dad Con? Well, uh Really, what we get out of it is a chance to uh, reaffirm, uh, recharge, and reconnect with uh, stay-at-home dads and what it means to be a stay-at-home dad. Um, we we really look to provide the tools to be better fathers, as well as uh, just give guys a chance to take a break. I mean, it, it, being a, a stay-at-home parent is a big job, and... This gives us a chance to not only learn about what others have done and what others can do, but also gives us a chance to um, just get a little bit of a break and enjoy ourselves, but um, always coming back to um, how are we going to become better by the end to uh, bring that home to the family. And Jonathan, can you give us a little uh, sense of your stay-at-home dad experience yourself? 
Uh, yeah, I am a 11 year um, stay at home dad. Um, I became a stay at home dad, um, not by choice, but by um, by circumstance. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have two kids. They are a teenager and a soon to be teenager. Um, they are uh, my foundation, but I, I have uh, I, I came into this role um, unprepared for what it meant to be an at-home parent. And so by finding the National At-Home Dad Network and finding the convention, I found guys who were going through the same things I was going through. And it provided me the opportunity to learn and grow as a parent and um, learn what it meant to be um, a better father, a better husband, uh, a better partner in the caring of our kids. Noel, uh, we've talked about your research in the past on how uh, families handle a stay-at-home parenting. Stay-at-home dads are not the majority, as I mentioned at the outset, but why do you think we've seen a steady increase in the number of dads uh, being the, the primary caregivers at home? Well, I mean, we've definitely seen, I think, more of a spotlight on men at home, but I, I would just set the records uh, straight and say that there's still a pretty small mm -hmm. number of dads. And that's one of the reasons why I think an organization like this is so important, where a lot of moms who are at home might have more informal opp opportunities to connect with each other because there's just more of them. I think for men in that role, they really have to build a structure to be able to find other men that are dealing with, as Jonathan said, some of the, the challenges of being an at-home parent, which I don't think are the same for men as they are for women who, who take on that role. And what do you see, Noel, as, as some of the biggest differences for that stay-at-home dad as opposed to a stay-at-home mom? Well, I mean, there's a lot of them. One of the things I would say at the outset that can be a problem that's a larger structural problem is the gender wage gap. So it's a hard decision for families to make anyway to have one person stay home and not be out in the labor force, especially in like high inflation times like we have now. Um, but it's even harder when on average women earn less. So it just gives families less, less flexibility to even act on that impulse if they want to do it. Um, but Jonathan mentioned some of the others. Um, there's stigma involved. Um, and there might even be a lack of kind of more informal preparation that is more linked to kind of the gender roles that we attribute to men and women mm -hmm. in the family. And yeah. Jonathan, yeah, jump in on that. Uh, the stigma and the gender roles. I heard you nodding along there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to Noel's, Noel's point, um, the parenting realm is predicated on uh, moms being the primary caregivers. So for dads, the challenge is overcoming those uh, socio-prescribed uh, ideas of who is a caregiver um, and, and working to show that men are as capable as women of the care of their children. Um, just there's so many structures that have been developed over the decades that have been predicated on women being caregivers that it's hard for dads to get inroads in those spaces and for men to feel comfortable in we're talking to National At-Home Dad Network President Jonathan Heisey-Grove and UW-Milwaukee sociology professor Noel Chesley 
how the challenge is facing stay-at-home dads and why more men are leaving the workforce, staying at home, though still, as Noah mentioned, uh, a minority for sure. The at-home dad convention is coming up uh, tomorrow in Milwaukee. You can join the conversation at 800-642-1234. Does your family have a stay-at-home parent? How did you decide which parent that was going to be if you are or have been a stay-at-home dad, as Jonathan is, as I was for a couple years? Love to hear your experience as well. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll pick up the conversation coming up next on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up the conversation about stay-at-home dads and the National At-Home Dads Convention happening tomorrow and Friday in Milwaukee. Our guests today are National At-Home Dad Network President Jonathan Heisey-Grove, who's organizing that convention, and UW-Milwaukee sociology professor Noelle Chesley, who is speaking at the event. And you can join in at 800-642-1234. If this is your story or any of the men in your life exited the workforce, completely or in part, to be stay-at-home dads. What questions do you have about uh, what happens at the convention, about uh, some of the stigma that they're trying to break? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring out a caller now. Marcus is with us in Milwaukee. Hey, Marcus. Hey, Rob. So my oldest son is now 21, his way to being 21. My oldest daughter uh, is 16. Um, when they were, I think she was about two and a half and he was like, whatever, six or whatever around there. Um, I took approximately a year and a half off, uh, just to, just to spend some extra time with them. And at the time, um, my ego took quite a bit of a hit because people would, you know, my friends would joke with me, Hey, how's it going, Mr. Mom, easy day doing dishes and hanging out at the house. And it was like, I, once I got past all that, um, to anybody who's thinking about doing this, I say that they should definitely go do it because I am so glad I did. And if I could go back, I would do more because it's, it goes by so quick and, and you'll miss it if you blink. So to anyone thinking about it, I strongly recommend it. Um, you know, at least give it a try. Marcus, thanks a lot for the call. Jonathan, I'm guessing you've hear, heard a lot of both sides of Marcus's story, the, the judgment there and the joy. Oh, absolutely. And one of the things that uh, we hear often is the Mr. Mom a moniker. And, um, uh, you know, I love Michael Keaton and I love that movie, <laughs> but it's it's just so out of date. Um, we, we have the dads don't babysit moniker now. And um, it, it really speaks to the fact that dads are just as capable as women at taking care of their kids. And so, the, the network and the convention work to break those stigmas. And your caller um, is just one representation of many representations of men who go through the similar um, experiences of being that guy who is, you know, taking the time and dedication to care for their kids and be there for their kids. And like he said, it's a moment that you can't reclaim if you miss it. And we're, st- we're starting to see through some of the studies that, that we are familiar with, um, particularly Equamundo, another um, group that's out there that's looking at fatherhood, that men are um, actively wanting to be a part of those early informative years of their kids' um, development. So we're starting to see that trend change but there's still that stigma sitting out there. 
Marcus, thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Noel, I've talked to you in the past about your research on, you know, when the the man is at home uh, as the primary caregiver for the most part and and the woman is working uh, and and being the primary, you know, money earner in the family. How have you seen that change family dynamics? Is it is that changing over the years? Yeah, well, certainly I can't speak so much to the over the years part, um, but the family dynamic part, I can definitely say a little bit more about. Um, First of all, you know, I think a lot of becoming a really fantastic caregiver, a lot of research shows that it really is about exposure. And um, I think the experience that Marcus was talking about kind of speaks to that, that anyone, whether they're a man or a woman who spends a lot of time with young children um, or older children for that matter, gets better at it over time. That these, this, it's sort of a skill set you can develop. And a lot of people take satisfaction in doing that work. Um, it's not just moms that can gain satisfaction from that. Dads can too. Um, so I think that's one of the the really great ways it can change family dynamics is that in my own work, um, one of the things that I found was that parents felt a lot more equal in their level of parenting skill over time, because there's a lot of factors pushing moms, even when they're um, employed outside of the home towards parenting. Um, So Mm -hmm. they they still stay pretty involved, but dads get the chance to get a lot more hands-on than they might otherwise. Jonathan, I wanted to talk about you know how we bring up kids because uh, you know as a guy when we first had kids, uh, all the diaper stuff was new to me. My wife had done you know babysitting uh-huh. starting when she was you know like seven. Then when I was I was working at home a little bit and in charge of the kids, I was learning on the job in a lot of ways. Should we start thinking about bringing up boys and girls with some familiarity with this stuff? Absolutely. Um, there are a lot of dads in this space that are actually doing that, that showing like being an example instead of an exception is something that I believe in a, a lot. And I, I try to instill that in my kids. But, um, it, you know, showing that you are as capable as mom and dealing with, uh, you know, a blowout diaper or <laughs> um, feeding problems um, is just as important as as mom. And so uh, dads have the capability of handling those situations. And b- by being that example, it, it provides your kids the opportunity to say that, you know, when I have kids, I can do it as well. Talking to Jonathan Heisey Grove, president of the National At Home Dad Network, and Noel Chesley with the Social Sociology Department at UW Milwaukee, talking about stay at home dads. Big convention kicking off tomorrow in Milwaukee. Still time for your call at 800 642 1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Let's go back to your calls. Dan is with us in New Berlin. Dan, hi. Hi. Yeah, you know, when, when I heard the term Mr. Mom, it brought back memories of back in the mid eighties. I was, I used to work for Miller Brewing Company, Miller Coors now, and we went on strike and for three months, and luckily it was June, July, or maybe May, June, July, something like that. Anyways, I had one child that was in kindergarten and the other one was just born. My wife fortunately was able to take a job for those three months. So I, Pretty much, hey, that was back before disposable diapers, you know, I'm washing them out by hand and um, hanging them on the line. And, you know, it was like, well, we realized 
you know, don't take the car unless it's absolutely necessary. Well, and she had her own car. My wife did for, to drive to work. But, I mean, it, it just the Mr. Mom thing really rung a bell because when I came back to work, that was, unfortunately, right when I when this happened, I was, um, I, a reporter came to my house and interviewed me and took, you know, pictures of me going, taking the kids to school. And, um, and, and it was just, yeah, I really got to, you know, realize, you know, that my wife didn't have it as gravy as I thought she did. <laughs> Dan, <laughs> thanks a lot for sharing that experience. Yeah. It's just our last couple of minutes. I want to ask each of you, has that, that Mr. Mom uh, perception changed uh, over the years? Noel, your thoughts in just a minute, and then I'll throw it to Jonathan. Well, I know when I did my interviews with some at-home dads, they were still, and this was about 10 years ago, they were still hearing things like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, Jonathan can probably speak to the most recent experience, but a lot of these cultural touchstones do have a way of hanging on. And she's absolutely right. They do hang on. And what we as an organization try to do is try to dispel those myths. And again, going back to the being the example Um, Being present at parenting meetings, being present at school, being present in your community as a parent that is caring for kids can do a lot to dispel the myth of being a babysitter, being a a Mr. Mom, shall we say. And, you know, guys who are experiencing like your last caller for that brief moment, realizing that it's not as easy as it seems. I think if if you know your listeners and those in the country that that aren't familiar with parenting or or uh, uh, you know want to do it, they need to get into it. They need to embrace it and and realize that parenting has a lot of rewards that you miss if if you ignore it and and decide not to do it. Thanks to both of our guests, Jonathan Heisey Grove, president of the National At-Home Dad Network, and Noel Chesley, associate professor and sociology department chair at UW-Milwaukee, with us today to talk about the National At-Home Dads Convention in Milwaukee this week and challenges facing fathers who are mainly the caregivers for their kids. Tomorrow on Central Time, the latest on Brewers Stadium funding. That and more tomorrow on Central Time. Coming up after the news, a UW business professor shares a study looking at same-sex couples and how they've struggled in some cases to navigate a wedding industry that's been slow to change traditional bride-groom marketing. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're listening to Central Time here on the Ideas Network.